Turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3 and verse 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And the title today is Withered Affections. The scene is Capernaum, the synagogue at Capernaum that town of about 2,000 people on the northern shore of the lake of Tiberias. This is very early at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And yet even now, he is being tracked and watched by the scribes and the Pharisees. And these come, there's no doubt, from Jerusalem. And they're watching him. Because John the Baptist has announced that Messiah is here. And that announcement has been heard by vast crowds. Perhaps the majority of the population of Judah have heard the preaching of John the Baptist. And they have been warned that the kingdom of God is coming. Messiah is here. The Lamb of God is here. And Christ then attracts the crowds also by his preaching and his healing, his compassionate miracles. And people press him and follow him now wherever he goes. His preaching, well, he expounds the scriptures of old, the Old Testament. But always his theme and his emphasis The end point of his preaching is repentance and remission of sins, or we might say conversion and the removal of sin. But, of course, the people have been wrongly taught by their clergy for years, and the expectation of the Jews is that they will all be blessed and accepted by God by virtue of their race, by virtue of their being special, this is how they saw it, by virtue of their having been given the law and the ancient worship, all these things were taken not as lessons of the need of mercy and forgiveness and a coming saviour and a great sacrifice for sin, but these things were quite wrongly taken as indications that they had the favour of God, and that this favour was cemented and guaranteed by their strict observance of all the ceremonial ritual. So they had turned salvation by grace, the free mercy of God, into a salvation of works and earning and deserving, and their privileged racial standing together with their observance of the ritual of the law, these things were the things which in their estimation guaranteed their acceptance with God. Well, Christ's preaching, as John the Baptist had, cut right across this repentance and remission of sins, the object being union with God, to know him, to encounter him, to have 
a spiritual relationship with him that was real and deep and felt and living. And all that was foreign to the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders of the people. This was offensive material. This suggested there was much the matter with them and they were not there and they were not accepted by God. And that's what Christ taught them. You remember when a leading Pharisee, Nicodemus, came to see Christ, presumably to negotiate with him, that he would work with them? Oh, they thought this would be a possibility. Our running the temple and uh, continuing as the leading clergy, but with Christ's miracles augmenting our rule and reign in the church, What an amalgamation that would be. And Christ said to him kindly but firmly, unless you're born again to a new experience of God, you're nowhere at all. Well, that's the background. So they're watching him and they're looking for trouble. What trouble? Well, he is being announced as Messiah. If we can hear from his lips a claim that he is divine. Well then, we've got him. We've caught him. We can put him on trial. But it went further than that. They were so infuriated by Christ that, and so hated him that they would, if possible, have him assassinated. Well, we come here to chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again. Notice the again. He taught several times already previously in the synagogue at Capernaum. He entered again into the synagogue and there was a man there which had a withered hand. Well, this is immediately after another healing on the Sabbath and then the disciples had been walking through the cornfields, plucking the ears of corn and rubbing the grain between their hands and eating it, which you actually were expressly permitted to do in the Old Testament. But the uh, clergy had added rules of their own over the years and they had made the divine laws for the Sabbath much more complicated. And even to pluck a grain and to an ear of corn and to rub it between your hands, they held it to be equivalent to reaping and threshing. Well, we've been through this. And so they challenged the disciples and scorned them. What are you doing? Breaking the Sabbath. And Christ had taught them already and and answered them. But they wouldn't hear. They were more firmly attached to the man-made complex additions to the law than they were to the scriptures themselves. But there, immediately after that, he goes into the temple, and there, would you believe it, that's the tone of the verse, was a man with a withered hand. Probably not just his hand, probably his forearm, shrunken and withered, and dried and inactive. There's an apocryphal gospel, but we can't rely upon that. It's not part of the word of God, but there's an apocryphal gospel that tells us he was a stonemason. And Luke, 
in the Gospel of Luke says it was his right hand. If there was anything in that, well, you could see that he couldn't follow his craft, he couldn't earn his living, he couldn't support his family. And verse 2, they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. They've learned nothing from what Christ has told them previously, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. Rise is the verb in the Greek. Rise up. But it means uh, stand here where everyone can see you. Everyone knew him probably. Capernaum wasn't a large place. Here's one of the people who can't work who is dependent upon charity. He can't function according to his skill, whatever it may have been. But look at him now, and he's there. You can see that uh, he's handicapped. It's going to be a great miracle. Everyone is waiting. And verse 4, he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil. You're going to do one or the other. If you've got somebody who is uh, handicapped and sick, and you have the power to heal, if you leave him alone, well, it would be like doing evil on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to save life or to kill? Well, interestingly... The clergy of those days were divided on this issue and yet agreed up to a point. Some of them said, under no circumstances must you heal anybody on the Sabbath day. And others said, well, you can if the person's life is in danger. If he's dying, then you can help him. Of course, they couldn't, they couldn't heal, only Christ could do that, but you can tend to him and comfort him and help him, spend time with him. If he's at death's door and you're saving a life or seeing him through that final valley, but not under any other circumstances. So they were disagreed and yet agreed that if somebody was had a withered hand, you certainly couldn't heal him on the Sabbath. They were wrong in that it was their rules, not God's. But they held their peace. They wouldn't debate the issue. Prejudice is always like that. Christ had pointed to Scripture. He taught them. They had no answer for him. They were wrong, but they weren't going to admit it. They were so hardened and they said nothing. We get that today. I won't spend time with this, but it's interesting that uh, uh, the uh, people who promote evolution and so on will never seriously debate or answer the great problems that are put forward. Problems that are put forward, I'm referring to those that come from also very accomplished Scientific brains, and there were many of them. Things that you would think were mighty torpedoes to the entire theory. And yet 
they'll never address them. They'll never answer them. The evolutionists, even the leading contenders, always present their case on their terms. They will never deal with the insurmountable problems. In fact, they will prevent anyone else, if they can, ever hearing of the problems. Science undergraduates today will know nothing about the case against evolution. Even most teachers won't. They'll never have heard of it. And I'm not going to stay with this, but maybe 35, 40 years ago, maybe a shade longer than that, there was an eminent professor of cytology at Southampton University, and he became uh, the principal or the vice-principal chancellor of the university in the course of time, retired now. But he uh, used to have the practice of setting his zoology and botany students a first essay, which was this. Tell me some of the arguments against evolution. And they never could. We've never heard of any arguments. And they would reply in an essay, all there are are religious arguments that if you believe in evolution, you're doing away with God. We know of no scientific grounds or arguments. And he would round up these essays and then he would give them a lecture. Well, here is the case against. Now, interestingly, he taught evolution himself. But he thought the seemingly insuperable arguments against should be articulated and understood. And so he wrote a book on the subject. It's out of print now and out of date. But there are many other books never answered that produce problems and difficulties which totally undermine everything. But they're hushed up. They're not on anybody's curriculum. Prejudice is always like that. What's happening then? You answer the scribes or the Pharisees and they were silent. They wouldn't argue. They couldn't. And that's always the method, the method of extreme prejudice. They held their peace. Verse 5, And when he had looked round about them, on them with anger, the Greek indicates deep feeling. Indignation, yes. Grief and sorrow, yes. With anger being grieved for the hardness, and the Greek strictly is blindness, of their hearts. But hardness is good. It's a little bit of an interpretation rather than a translation, but it is good because what is blindness of heart, willful as it was with the scribes and the Pharisees, but hardness, and hardness is mentioned a little further on, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. You couldn't tell them, you couldn't teach them, you couldn't show them that the scripture said the opposite of what they were teaching. They were so attached by their pride to their idea that 
I am an upright, righteous individual. I meticulously observe the rites and ceremonies of the ancient worship given by God. I don't look at its meaning. I perform, and therefore I've accomplished salvation, as it were, and life with God. And they were so proud and so attached to this, they were hard. They didn't even notice their faults, their shortcomings, their sins. Here they are plotting, in due course, to murder Christ. And it never occurs to them. Look at my heart and attitude. I want to kill somebody. They were blind to their own sin and to their own need. They were hypocrites. They were sinners themselves. When he had looked round about on them with anger, with indignation, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, they pressed to the front of the crowd. They had dignity and office. They could get there. They could see a yard away, a compassionate healing by Christ. They could see a withered hand in an instant fill and become a full hand once again. They could see the man when he was healed in due course, clenching and unclenching his fist. It was astonishing, amazing. And yet they were so hard, it didn't move them. It didn't convince them. It didn't impress them. Hardness of heart. Something in everyone in a measure. But it becomes progressive. Let's make this constructive for ourselves. Is there such a thing as Christian hardness of heart? Unfortunately, there is. Of course, it's not necessarily in the same league as that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Of course not. We're talking about people who at some time, their hearts have been melted and moved and convicted of sin. And they've come to Christ. It may be you. And you've walked with him and proved him and loved him. But in some measure, sometimes, you've passed through an experience where your heart has reacquired hardness and blindness, and you're cold. Maybe you identify with this. You've had it several times, maybe, in your spiritual pilgrimage. And God has fortunately brought you back in his mercy. And your tears have run as it were. And you've repented. And you've lived for him again. And you haven't wanted to slip back. Or perhaps you're in such a condition, even now. So just for a moment, let's think about that. Christian hardness of heart. How can you tell? Well, sometimes you suddenly notice a believer's attendance is shaken. You can't see, perhaps, the skipping private devotions or reading of the scripture, but what you do see is 
they're no longer at one of the services on Sunday. Or they've discontinued coming weeknights and hearing the word. And they were so keen and so regular. What's happened? Well, of course, there is some possibility that there may be some real problem preventing it, that they cannot help or we allow for that. But no, they just haven't got the heart anymore, the enthusiasm, the sense of need, the desire. So they're no longer attending. They're not there. Maybe that's the sign. That's the indication. And in fact, uh, things are going on in the heart. They're not there and... They think, well, I don't need to be there. I'm quite well instructed. I know the doctrines. I know the word. I followed Bible studies for some years. It isn't imperative. I don't need to be there. I'm a mature Christian. I stand. Because with coldness of heart, there always comes, Satan ensures it, a measure of spiritual pride and self-confidence and self-reliance. I don't really need to do that. I'm, I've got a lot to do, a lot of things to think about, things I want to accomplish, distractions. I don't need it. That's all part of the coldness. As time goes by, be careful. That will become, I don't want it. I don't want to be in earnest. I don't want you become a little cynical and the Lord will let it happen to you. It's part of his chastisement. He'll actually let you slide and things, difficulties will come into your life and you should be asking, why am I making such heavy weather of this and of that and my objectives have been frustrated so often and I, I can't control myself as I used to. Why are these things going wrong in my life, in my spiritual walk? You don't ask the question, so you're not, you don't hear the warnings. And maybe there'll be a great fall or some discipline of the Lord to bring you back. What about those who know you, those who are close to you, those friends of yours? Who notice your absence? Haven't they come alongside and encouraged you or remonstrated with you or warned you? Maybe they haven't. And that's a fault, isn't it? That we know people who start to slip a little and grow cold. And we have the means of helping them because we're their special friends. We can do it without offense. We can talk to them. But we don't. We play the coward. We leave them alone. So we don't exhort one another and help one another. And so members of the family of God can grow cold and become cynical and then become prickly and resistant to encouragement. We've seen it happen, friends. You know, we need constant exhortation and encouragement of the word. You remember the words of Christ 
in the temptation in Matthew 4, chapter 4, verse 4. I'll read it from verse 3. The tempter came to him, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Then Christ answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you understand those words, friends? They were Christ's response to Satan in a temptation in that terrible time of intensive and concentrated temptation. But listen to the words. Man shall not live by bread alone. He employs the food analogy. You know, you may be converted and you may have been grounded in the faith and read the doctrinal books and listened to Bible studies for some years. You cannot say, I've got enough. The food analogy. You can't say, I've had a feast. I don't need to eat for a month or a year or two years. Food is daily. If you leave it off, you run out of strength and you'll be sick and you'll wither away. And so it is with the word of God. You heard certain exhortations or comforts or doctrines that were vital to you on the 1st of January. Do you need to hear them again on the 1st of February? It's like food, you do. You vitally need the reminder, the encouragement, the refreshment. You need it all the time because you're sinning all the time. The devil is tempting you all the time. You're running short of physical energy and spiritual energy and zeal all the time. You need the same exhortations. That's why the word of God is so big. That's why we teach it systematically and continuously, constantly. Because we need in different presentation, in different form, from a different angle, different nuances we need the same exhortations encouragements counsels and promises constantly and if you say I don't need to be in the house of God more than once a week I don't need the weeknight fellowship and so on you're being very foolish and it's pride and you will weaken and you will wither and you cannot be so used. Well, I've said a great deal about that. I'm trying to turn to account for us the message essentially of hardness. Don't get into coldness and hardness of heart. Fight it all through your journey, all the way to heaven. It's a vital. But I come down to verse 6. Or verse 5, when he had looked round on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. Now let's just 
complete our thinking by looking at the way in which faith works in the man with the withered hand. There's a great help for us here. Stretch forth thine hand. Christ didn't say, be healed. He didn't touch him. The command for healing was never given in a direct form. He asked him to do something that it was impossible for him to do. That's the very thing he couldn't do. Stretch forth his hand. His hand did not operate. And his forearm probably. He was handicapped. What a cynical thing to say. Cynical command. Stretch forth your hand, your arm. Impossible. And yet he did it. He couldn't do it. But he did it. The healing had already happened. As he willed to do it, desired to do it, wanted to do it, he could do it. And in that there's a tremendous lesson. It's a lesson we call the obedience of faith. Christ says, repent of your sin. Trust in me and what I've done on Calvary's cross. Yield your life to me. And as you long and desire to do it, you receive the strength to do it. And you are born again. You are converted. There's already been a regeneration within you that is invisible, but it now issues in your conversion as you obey the command to repent and to yield. The man must have thought to himself, but he's asking me to do the very thing I cannot do. But then he must have reflected, but it's Christ Jesus, it's Jesus of Nazareth who is the Messiah, who is God. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's a title for God. It starts life in the book of Daniel. A great title for God. John the Baptist said, He is the Messiah that I announce to you. He tells me to do it. Therefore, it must be possible now, once the command comes from him, I can go to stretch forth my hand. The obedience of faith. You see, what he weighed was not whether I can do it, but who's asked me, who's told me. God himself, God in Christ, the Messiah, not only had he been announced by John, not only did he use a divine name or title to describe himself, but he'd seen or heard of his miracles. There had already been countless healings, probably thousands of them, in Capernaum, people streaming into the town with every kind of sickness. 
So he trusted him. He's healed countless others. If the word comes from him, stretch forth your hand, I can do it. Then he'd seen his bearing. He was clad as an ordinary man, not a profiteer, not a charlatan or rogue, taking no money for his healings, walking humbly. He is God, a man of such character, a man who does it out of compassion and not for his own well-being, nothing like the clergy. Then he was in the synagogue. He'd no doubt been there before. He'd heard the teaching of Christ. He'd heard its depths, how Christ taught with such authority. Nobody had ever heard the Old Testament expounded as he did, and his gracious words and message. He was miles higher than the professional teachers, the scribes, and the Pharisees. With all that conviction, he is God. He asks me, are you a seeker and you're having a struggle coming to Christ and you've repented of your sin and you've prayed to him for salvation and nothing seems to happen to you and you, you, your trust in him begins to fade? Well, like this man with a withered hand, Yes, but who is it who invites you to come to him? It is the Son of God who walked on earth, who went to Calvary's cross, man of mighty compassion, who suffered and died for sinners, who saved millions, who has such power. Can't you trust him and give him your life and truly repent of your sin? Make no excuses. Don't plead that you've got any good works. They're nothing by comparison with your need and your sin. Just give him your life. Repent of your sin. Trust what he did on Calvary to pay the price of salvation for you. And give him all your life, all your ambitions, every part of you. Say you'll be for him and you'll live a new life. You can't do it. But as you give yourself to him, you'll find he's changed you. Suddenly you're filled with love for him. Suddenly when you pray to him, you feel your prayers are real and you're heard. You have assurance that you're now his and you're forgiven. You begin to see answers to your needy prayers. You've got a conscience such as you never had before. You always had one, but now it means something. You want to do right. You hate your sin. Your very desires change. The things that were wrong and greedy and selfish that you love to do, you've got no taste for anymore. You want to worship. You feel close to the people of God. You see the changes that are brought about in you because you stretched forth your hand. There's a lesson for Christians in the man with the withered hand and there's a lesson 
forsakers. And dear friends, we're pretty well out of our time. I close looking down to verse 6. The Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians. Who were they? They were not people of faith. They were people more interested in politics that supported King Herod and admired him. And normally the scribes and the Pharisees hated them and they wouldn't talk to them. And now, this is the significance, they're suddenly consorting with them and planning with them the death of Christ. But at this moment, because this is early in his ministry, his three years to walk on earth and to perform miracles and to teach and to instruct his disciples, verse 7, Jesus withdrew himself to the shore, to the sea. A great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea, from all through the country, from Jerusalem and from Idumea, from beyond Jordan, they were coming distances, and now the greatest distance of all, 45 to 50 miles from about Tyre and Zidon, a great multitude had come for miles to Capernaum, which he had made, Christ had made his base for the time being. When they heard what great things he did, they came unto him. Verse 10, for he had healed many. That's a little bit of an understatement. And Matthew says he healed them all. Every single person who came to him in need was healed. And there's a message in that. If you're coming to Christ, does Satan whisper in your ear, but how do you know that he'll accept you? And you go back to the scripture. The demonstration given by Christ was this. He healed all the sick who came to him. And your promise is in that demonstration. Even unclean spirits, everything. May God help us with lessons for coldness of heart and lessons for seeking the Lord.